from the William Hill Sportsbook at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino, it's Cofield and Company. All right, here we go on Thursday, our Thursday home, Silver 7's, Flamingo and Paradise. Three hours on the way before we hand it off to the national broadcast of Thursday Night Football. Dolphins and Bengals, good game. One we'll probably look back on as affecting the playoff race, so tons of good stuff to get into. We'll get to our TNF preview in the 4 o'clock hour. Football royalty all over the show uh, as we move along, and we'll check in with our legal insider in just a little bit on that Brett Favre case and much more. Xavier Pope is up in about 40 minutes, but I'm going to do a giveaway coming out of the gates here. We have all these cool events going down, including Thursday Night Football here. you got the 77-cent beers at Silver 7s. We've also got... Tickets to Oktoberfest, 7 Brew Oktoberfest. we got two sets of tickets going on right now. We're going out right now. Caller 7 and 8. Four-day festival starting up today. Two sets of tickets, 7 Brew Oktoberfest. You can get more information at Oktoberfest.Vegas. 364-1100-364-1100. Caller 7 and 8. Nari will hook you up. Let's do it. It's the three on Cofield and Company. So you got that event going on, lots of concerts. Obviously, we've already got the VGK season underway. We're going to talk to Dan Duva in the 4 o'clock hour. And then the Football Rebels, you know, the Football Rebels are playing over at Allegiant. It's a Friday night game. You know, this is a, a tradition now. Every year you get some Thursday and Friday night games to get those national TV spots. And this one's on CBS Sportsnet between UNLV and New Mexico. But go to the game. Go to the game. It's an 8 o'clock start. Nothing to do on Saturday. You know, I know we're uh, a 24-7 town, so some people got to work. But cool spot. If you haven't been to Allegiant, it's a good opportunity to watch a football game at Allegiant. New Mexico's a pretty solid team, plays a tricky defense, triple option, and the Rebels are off to a good start at 3-1. and one. You can grab your tickets at UNLVTickets.com. So they're looking for a big crowd out there tomorrow. Marcus Arroyo was talking about that at his Monday press conference and said, I humbly ask people to come out and check out the product and you know kind of pay off in a way uh what we're doing as a program and i noticed someone yesterday on social media mentioned that this is one of the big biggest transitions in terms of uh, stadiums that we've seen in recent college football history going from sam boyd which was more than long in the tooth to an nfl stadium is pretty crazy, and the digs, when the visitors come in, they're blown away. UNLV's got a nice setup there, and they've got their own field, and it's a good deal for UNLV. Yeah, we had to pay $750 million, the public did, to make sure that the stadium was built and uh, ensure that UNLV would get a chance to play there. Along the same lines, we're going to see something, I'm guessing, in about five years, which will be a big transition, but these are totally different worlds we're talking about. I just mentioned. We, the public, paid $750 million. I know it's a hotel tax, but all that money could be going to other things. And if you look around town, I mention it all the time, our roads are a friggin' disaster. You know, yeah, egress, ingress, uh, in and out of the Strip is a nightmare. Now they're working on the uh, TROP bridge and the whole TROP exit system there at the 15. So we kind of bought into this whole stadium thing. You know who doesn't have to buy into it? is anyone involved with the Big Ten because TV has come with a freaking pot of gold and in the stadium transition thing, it was interesting to see someone mention, hey, Northwestern is going to have a stadium transition that's 
probably only surpassed by what UNLV is getting by going into Allegiant. You know, we talk a lot about conference realignment, conference poaching, conferences crumbling. We'll see what's going to happen with the Big Ten and the Pac-12. But when you see the news yesterday come down that Northwestern, awesome academic institution, okay from an athletic standpoint, but it frankly doesn't matter because they're grandfathered into the Big Ten. They're one of the old schools that's in the Big Ten. The new Big Ten deal is going to fetch each school, each school, 90 to $100 million a year. Northwestern just announced they're going to be building a new stadium. Now, keep in mind, they spent about $450 million on an athletic facility that basically covers everyone from a training standpoint in their sports programs. Now they're going to build a new football stadium slash concert venue and whatever else they want to use it for. The tag on that one is $800 million for a college football stadium. I'll remind you that some stadiums have been built recently. The stadium that San Diego State built, you know, somewhere in the 275 to $325 million range, smaller stadium. Uh, Houston paid about the same price, maybe about $300, $250 million for theirs. Colorado State has a new stadium about that same price. The stadium at Northwestern will be $800 million. And why is that possible? Because of Big Ten money. And they're not replacing Ryan Field with some you know, 65,000-seat facility. That would be stupid. It's a 35,000-seat stadium for eight hundred million dollars so if you wonder why ucla and usc were like we're going there and then tv did pony up what everyone thought it would across multiple channels so the big 10 has all this money in this new deal in the offing and what that means is there's more rumbling about the big 10 going west and trying to pluck away schools cbs sports the guy who writes most of the conference realignment stuff is a Big 12 region guy, so I always kind of take this information a little cynically because I feel oftentimes like there's a little bit of information planted with the writer. But, hey, he wrote today, the uh, Big 10, the pursuit of four Pac-12 schools is now leading to the belief that the Pac-12 could crumble, which sucks because the Pac-12 was a great historic conference those schools belong together. It blows that USC and UCLA are moving on. They're looking potentially to add, and this is kind of all rehashing what we talked about a couple months ago, and we thought it would calm down and maybe the TV deals would come forward for the Pac-12 and people would covet those late-night spots, West Coast markets, and put up you know pretty big money, not Big Ten money, but keep the conference together. But the Big Ten and the SEC control this whole thing, and right now the Big Ten is making deals and moves, but uh, Big Ten presidents need to be convinced that Cal, Oregon, Stanford, and Washington would be valuable additions. At that point, the figure would probably drop below $100 million per school, but, you know, 90s, 90s, not bad. And then what's the uh, rollover effect from that? Well, then all of a sudden you've got this mini conference with just a half dozen teams, and the Big 12 is lurking. And, again, I, I take these stories – not with a grain of salt, but I look at him cynically because, again, th- this is a Big 12 writer who's around the Big 12 commish being fed information. Might be accurate. Might not be accurate. Might be a PR move by the 
Big 12 because the Big 12 wants to survive. And what does survival mean? I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to be left after. If there's another plucking of all these teams in the Pac-12, Pac-10, we may have a Power Four. Right now there's five big conferences that make, you know, per school, you know, roughly $35 million or more. And then there's markets like ours with UNLV and San Diego State. And, you know, you can go through the whole Mountain West. The group of five schools, they're lucky to be getting five, six million dollars per school. So you can see the arms war, it makes it almost impossible. And UNLV did get, you know, a good break and great donations. It gets good support. You have a forty million dollar football facility with the Fertita Center. You've got a two billion dollar stadium you get to play in. So they're kind of the outlier amongst group of fives. Uh, even though the school isn't getting a whole lot of money, they have good funding. The state, you know, backed up with our money, building a stadium and building them a home so they can compete at a decent level. But after this, I have no idea. It could be a power three because once the Big Ten starts adding teams from the West Coast, I think the SEC will step up and go, you know what, Uh, who do we want from the ACC? Uh, We're going to take Clemson, Florida State, Miami. Maybe we'll take two other schools. And then the Big Ten and the SEC will both have 20 schools in it. And then from there, it could be a, a power four. It could be a power three. So things changing quickly in the world of college football. So rumors... They're rumors, but that $800 million stadium at Northwestern where I don't really think they care that much about football, but, hey, we got the money, so let's build the palace. You know, let's make money off of concerts and shows. They're going to do it. On the way back, we're going to get into the UNLV game. We're going to get into the national college football scene. We're going to talk to former Texas and former Houston head coach and assistant at Ohio State. Tom Herman is on the way. Join Cofield and Company on Mondays for the live 2 to 5 show at Twin Peaks in Henderson. Big beers for under 4 bucks. Select appetizers are 2 4 and $6. Come hang at Twin Peaks for Monday Night Football. Shotgun formation for Doug Brumfield. He takes the snap. Two-step drop. Looking. Passing over the middle. The pass is complete. Williams at the 35 up to the 39-yard line. A 29-yard reception in the clutch. Or Nick Williams, who came off the bench, and it's a first down for the Rebels. Hanging at the William Hill Sportsbook inside Silver Sevens, it's Cofield and Company. Russ Langer on the call there. We're going to talk to UNLV wide receiver Nick Williams in just a little bit. Russ, myself, and Caleb go live tomorrow from Allegiant at 7.30. We'll be on radio, on TV, calling the game as the analyst is uh, Tom Herman, former college football coach at Texas and Houston and the assistant at Ohio State and he's working for CBS and he gives us a couple of minutes here on this Thursday. Coach, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Are you a Vegas guy? I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm sitting in this beautiful Fertitta football facility. Wow, is this thing impressive. Yeah, what do you think for a school like UNLV? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If we had something like this at, at, at Houston, that would have been... Uh, Phenomenal, um, but this this thing is this is this is a class act right here. I can tell you that. Yeah, I think it's been part of a, a game changer for UNLV as they've tried to build and, and get old in certain spots by, by using the transfer portal. I'm guessing a lot of guys who come in in the transfer portal for the visit look around and they're like, "Wow, this is awesome." Oh yeah, there, there are plenty of Power Five programs that don't have a facility as nice as this. 
So let's get into the game first by uh, talking about just the coaching fraternity. And, you know, I start to look up all these connections. And every time I talk to Marcus Arroyo, he's like, I worked with this guy here, this guy here, this guy here. I know you're a, a Simi Valley guy. You went to Cal Lutheran. So, you know, West Coast guy <laughs> originally. Do you have any connections on either one of these staffs that you worked with in the past or you know someone who worked with them? Uh, just at New Mexico, uh, their offensive coordinator, Derek Warheim, was my – graduate assistant at Rice okay. um, and then went on and, and coached Division Two FCS. And then I hired him uh, from being the tight ends coach at New Mexico to be my O-line coach at Houston. He was my O-line coach for a couple years at Texas and was my tight ends coach and then left Texas to go be the offensive coordinator at, at New Mexico. New Mexico. So, Close with him. I've known Marcus for forever. We've never worked together, but you know, we kind of ran in the same same circles of you know coordinators and quarterback coaches and whatnot. And I've always respected what he's done. And um, in fact, one of my my best friends grew up with Marcus, so we we've got a, a a mutual friend as well. So Tom Herman is with us. All right. So what do you think of the job he's done so far? It was a rebuilding project. He had started in the COVID year. What do you think about what he's done so far? I think it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable. He is an impressive, impressive coach. He's doing it the right way. Obviously, he's got something really nice to recruit to, not just this facility, but the city of Las Vegas, the stadium now that they're, they're getting to play in. Uh, you know, his system, both offensively and defensively, he's, he's doing it the right way. He's, he's holding the kids accountable. He's teaching them how to be mature, teaching them how to be pros, teaching them how to be – uh, you know, grown men, and that's what we all got in this profession to do is to, to turn boys into men, and he's doing a great job of that. And, oh, by the way, they're, they're winning a bunch of football games, and they're exciting to watch, too. And I think one of the big things they're doing is uh, last year they set up a culture, but they couldn't get around the corner, and they wound up losing uh, six games. They went 0-6 in games that were eight points or less, and you can kind of see the difference. Uh, winning develops into more winning uh, talk about that in your past. Like, do you see it with kids you know, from a confidence standpoint that kids who win consistently, when the game comes down to a real grind point, they have a confidence. And sometimes when you fall short a lot, it's hard to get over that hump. Yeah, we, we dealt with that at Texas when we took over. You know, they, they had three straight losing seasons. And so the players there, much like Marcus was describing here, you know, how – you know, we just got done talking with, with Coach Arroyo, and, and he told us the same thing, you know, that a lot of times when you go to a place that hasn't performed well, it might be for one or two years, and there's still kids in that locker room, there's still a culture there that knows how to win, that knows how to, um, you know, do things the right way. And But when you come and take over a job like this, none of that exists, and so you have to create it, and that is that is very, very difficult to do, and it takes time. I'm, I'm glad the administration uh, is giving him the time that he needs and the resources that he needs because he's doing a, a great job here, and, and the culture is a complete 180 from what it was three years ago. Tom Herman's with us. I'm glad you mentioned you know, giving the coach the time because it does take a while to build things, and – you know, when you're a guy like, say, Andy Avalos, who's the coach at Boise State, when it was built and there was high success and then you come in and maybe you weren't, uh, given what other coaches were in the past at Boise State, patience wears thin. I, I wonder what's going to happen at Boise because this is crazy. For the starting quarterback to go into the portal before week five, 
And now Dirk Cutter, who's a very experienced guy, is the OC. I, I, I wonder how Boise is going to come out of this and try to turn the corner. And the first assignment's not easy because they go against San Diego State tomorrow night. Yeah, that, that is a tall order to, to make those kind of changes on your staff midseason as well as, like you said, unprecedentedly having your starting quarterback enter the transfer portal. But I, I think, you know, that's the world we live in right now with the transfer portal. I think I don't want to put words or thoughts in, into the young man's mouth, but uh, he probably saw the writing on the wall. He, he did not play well against Oregon State. That, that's a given. The, the other kid came in and played well, and he probably saw the writing on the wall and wanted to preserve this redshirt year and go find a place where he didn't have to be looking over his shoulder all the time. But you are right. When you make changes like that, not the Dirk Cutters is as good an offensive mind and, and coordinator as there is. So that's a pretty good one to have if you're, if you're going to make a change midseason. But anytime you kind of have that unrest throughout your program, it's hard to manage, and, and he's, got a, he's got a tough job ahead of him. I'm not going to ask you if you like it because I don't think coaches like it, but do you understand why there's so much upheaval around college football, and especially out in this region now with the Pac-12? We got a story today about, hey, the Pac-12 could lose four more teams if the Big Ten just basically snaps its finger and extends the invite. I, I just wonder what the future of the Pac-12 is if that money's there coming from the Big Ten, if they can hold it together. I don't know. I know they're trying to. I know the commissioner is doing everything that he can. I, I hope they do. It's the, quote, conference of champions. But college football is a lot different today than when I signed up for it, Steve. And, you know, uh, the almighty dollar rules. And, you know, if, if a university thinks they can, you know, provide their university with, with more revenue by being in a certain conference, then they're probably going to make that move because uh, it revolves around money. And, you know, I feel really bad. I, I do. I feel bad for that volleyball player at USC that's got to go to Rutgers on a Tuesday, you know, or what, whatever. That's, that's going to be miserable for those non-revenue sports that, that play midweek and play many more games a year than, than what football does. And, um, but it's the way of the world. And, you know, whether we like it or not, neither you nor I are going to change it. We've got to adapt. And uh, like I said, it's not what I signed up for, but it is the way of the world now, and, and we've all got to get used to it. I wanted to ask a coach's question and how they look at these jobs. Would you take a job at a place where you're like, I don't know what conference they're going to be in in five years, or is it separate with each case like you, you know you take the job you assume it's going to still be in a power five like what would you do well take take me out of this this, <laughs> this will be purely hypothetical yes um uh, coach a let, let, let's put it that way yeah uh, coach, coach a definitely when, when looking at jobs there are so many factors that you you have to factor into obviously administration support is, is number one recruiting Potential is number two. Fan support, obviously. Budget is is up there. But never in a million years did you think you'd have to be thinking about, well, what conference am I going to be playing in in two years? Right. You know, you, you just never never thought about that. But, but you do now, Steve. You, you really do. And that's got to be one of the important factors. And, and you've got to know who's leading you into that conference or, or leading you through this this journey of, of realignment that is 
ever continuing, you, you've got to feel comfortable with the athletic director and the president that, that they're going to find a way to, to give you the things that they said they were going to give you when you decided to take the job. Did you see the comments of uh, Ed Orgeron about three weeks ago at the Arkansas Touchdown Club where he was talking about his buyout? He seemed really jolly, really happy. Um, listen, you're in a position where I'm, I'm, I, you know, I assume you, you, you got some good money from these other jobs in the past. You can be a little more picky and choosy on that front. How hard is it to get back into the game, like you just said, without hearing you're going to get everything you need? It is hard. You know, it's it's hard for me. You know, I was worn out from from being a head coach and wanted to. I had some freedom, like you said, and and wanted. I'd never coached in the NFL. Spent a year there last year, uh, and then, you know, I, I'm enjoying this podcasting thing. It's a new challenge for me, and you know, I'm trying to get better at it. It's harder than you think yep. <laughs> for yep. people listening right now, especially in color. You know, the studio stuff I did in New York was really easy. Doing color, man, all the research you have to do, that, it's, that's a difficult job throughout the week. It, it, it's a real job. So it's been a fun challenge for me. But you're right. It has to be the right fit. And, and by fit, it's got to be the right fit for the family. It's got to be the right fit culturally. It's got to be the right fit from a recruiting base. And it's got to be a right fit from the personality and, and vision of the athletic director and president fitting and meshing with, with the fit and, and vision of, of the head coach. It's also a challenge for guys who are at good jobs but maybe not perceived as unbelievable jobs. Like, I wonder what Jonathan Smith at Oregon State is going to do if he has a massive season. You know, you look around. Do you want to be three and done, four and done somewhere else, or do you want to be at a place where you're kicking booty, you got something good in place, and you're making good money? Yeah, I don't think any of us, I hope none of us got into this profession for – money you know i mean i, I didn't make over thirty thousand dollars a year until i was 32 years old or something like that so i mean it, it was i don't think any of us got got into it for money we got into it for you know helping like i said boys become men teaching the game of life through the game of football and then being competitors i think we're all competitors we all want to win and so i, I don't know very many coaches that uh, I really don't know any that have taken a job because it's doubled their salary. I think they all take the job because they feel like this is a place where I can win at and win. And we all want to win a national championship. And so you're either going to take a job that you think you can win at to get to a job where you can win a national championship, or you're going to take a job that you feel like you can win a national championship at. So again, fit for family and fit for each coach is so important. And so I don't want to speak for the whole profession, but I, I know the vast majority of us, money was, was never an issue into, into why we got into this profession. The voice of the former Texas and Houston coach, Tom Herman on Cofield and company. How are they getting things done? We were just talking about the rebuild here with Marcus Arroyo. How are they getting things done so quickly at Kansas? Culture. Yeah. You know, I, I think – Culture beat strategy every day of the week. And I think Lance Leipold, the hell of a coach, he's proven that at a bunch of different levels, a bunch of different stops, and he's got them believing in there. And when you have a quarterback, Steve, you've got a chance. And, and they have one in Jalen Daniels. And so when, when you've got one of those guys that is not only dynamic on the field but is a, a real galvanizing force in the locker room, 
you know, he helps you build that culture very quickly as, as Lance has done. And um, it's, it's fun to watch when you, you see a program that's been so dormant for so long, you know, have the early success that they've had right now. So let's uh, come full circle and close out with the New Mexico and UNLV game. I saw a top ten list of quarterbacks up on uh, CBSSports.com, and uh, Doug Brumfield has played really well this year. I don't expect him to be in the top ten. I think PFF actually has him like the 12th or 13th ranked quarterback in the country. Have you got a chance to uh, look at film with him? And I'm sure you got the comments today from Marcus Arroyo. What do you think of the uh, Rebels' uh, big lefty quarterback? I think he's awesome. I think he's really, really good. I think he has developed so much from last year. Marcus will tell you that. You know, T.J. Woods will tell you that. That you know he's he's comfortable with the scheme, even though they brought Nick Holt in. They kept the language the same for him. Marcus is still calling the plays, so he's just you know he's gotten the reps that he didn't get from from being injured last year. And although he was still very involved and, and a leader on the team. There's just something you, you cannot replicate actual physical reps, and, and he didn't get a lot of those last year from, from being so banged up. But I love his presence. I love his ability to get the ball out. I love his, you know, his accuracy has improved tremendously. And then when the play breaks down, to watch him run around at six foot five is just something to behold. I, I, I think he's one of the best in the country. Yeah, top, top five or eight. I'm not quite sure. I'm not there yet, but, but. He's, he's in the conversation. And that all said, he's got a crazy task in front of him because not many people play the three-three-five defense like New Mexico does. And then the UNLV defense, UNLV defense has to face a triple option, which you, that's hard to replicate in practice. So both sides of the ball are like, all right, we're seeing something completely different. Yeah, what New Mexico presents is very unique both offensively and defensively. That three-three-five that, uh, that Rocky Long basically invented, you know, decades ago is extremely difficult to prepare for. It, it limits your offensive game plan. But at the end of the day, if you, if you can just get hats on hats, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, UNLV's got some superior talent, especially on the perimeter. Uh, if they can find a way to hold up and, and get the ball out quickly to, to some of their skill guys and obviously hand it off to Aiden Robbins, I think they'll be fine against it. And then, yeah, defending the triple option is is a bear. You've got to have such great eye discipline, such great assignment discipline. And then but what Mexico does so well is they're not just triple option. They're not just, you know, they're not Navy. They're not Air Force. They can line up in a traditional spread set and just run inside zone or run zone read or, or you know, jet sweeps, things of, of that nature that are – add an extra element because if you're playing a true triple option team like Navy or Air Force, you spend your whole week, you know, being assignment sound on these specific defensive calls for this specific offensive play. But now you've got to fit those calls to inside zone, outside zone, all that stuff too. Coach, great job. We appreciate the time, and we'll see you out at the stadium on Friday. All right, Steve. Good talking to you. Thank you. There he is, the coach Tom Herman, former Texas coach, former Houston coach, big winner as an assistant coach at Ohio State. He'll be calling the game on CBS tomorrow night over at Allegiant UNLV against New Mexico. Awesome giveaways and promotions all week long at the William Hill Race and Sportsbook inside Silver 7's Hotel and Casino.
That's football, man. I take responsibility for that, man. We haven't won this year. That solves everything, as you know. When we went on our run last year, a lot of things got overlooked because we're winning. But at the end of the day, it's all about winning, and uh, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that we stay focused on that. You know, if we start getting into you know all the other stuff, we're playing the game for the wrong reasons. So we got to win to solve some of those problems. Hanging at the William Hill Sportsbook inside Silver 7s, it's Cofield and Company. Lots of Raiders stuff coming up in the second half of the show. We're live at Silver 7, 77 cent beers, Bud, Bud Light Mick Ultra Bottles. Got the hot dog special, 777 for a big brewski and a couple hot dogs and a couple bags of chips. This is an awesome spot to watch Thursday Night Football. Dolphins and the Bengals are going at it. Derek Carr on the way back. You know, Derek speaks a good game. He's now going to start delivering, and I'm sure he's going to be super motivated by getting ripped apart by ESPN's Dan Orlovsky with the whole film breakdown. And the other thing is the team has to stick together because there's been some weird stuff uh, the last four or five days, um, immature clashes with the media in the media session and also in the locker room. And it doesn't – it's not the whole team, but it doesn't speak well to how some of the guys on the team are reacting to getting off to an 0-3 start. The season's not over. Everyone's got to freaking calm down because when you do stuff like that, it can roll the wrong way quickly. And like I said, it shows an immaturity. Come on. You're 0-3. You're not 0-8. So hold it together, Raiders. Giveaway time. 364-1100-364-1100. We got Eddie Vedder in town, lead singer Pearl Jam. He's playing October 7th. That's next Friday. Dolby Live, Park MGM. You can grab your tickets at Ticketmaster. Dot com. It's Eddie Vedder in town. Caller 7 right now. Ari will give you the tickets. 364-1100. Speaking of quarterbacks who I think, uh, or a quarterback who is uh, pretty in tune with kind of Buffalo on people, pulling the wool over their eyes, Brett Favre, and more news out on Favre and his problems in this welfare, uh, welfare fraud case in Mississippi. We'll roll through it with our legal analyst, Xavier Pope, here on this Thursday. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. People put that cluster of seasons that includes every 60-plus home run season not involving Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, and now Aaron Judge. They put it in a different place. It's not a question of morality or criminality, but it is a question of authenticity. And to one extent or another, what McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds did was inauthentic. Lawyer, host of Suit Up News, legal and cultural contributor, Xavier Pope, is live on Cofield and Company. Bob Costas on the way back. Well, as I've said for 20-plus years, Bob Costas does not speak for most of the nation. I don't believe he's very much in touch with the average fan. So take what he said with a grain of salt. There's a group of people who don't think that the – whatever you want to say about the era, I actually think it started back in about 83, and I think it – it might still be going on now. I don't know. But this nonsense about who's the home run king and what records are being set by Aaron Judge, let's get into it. Xavier Pope was here with us. Xavier, how you doing, buddy? Pretty good. How you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm good. Um, listen, Bob Costas is a, you know, he's a pro. Um, but I think he's very sanctimonious when it comes to baseball. He's also one of the guys who told us that the wild card playoff system would suck and ruin baseball. That was a complete failure. And, <laughs> Egg all over his face. And, and Bob does not speak for the average sports fan. Um, I see a lot of smart people out there who are pushing back on this who are like, no, Barry Bonds is the all-time home run king, and I don't care right now what – not that you don't care, but Judge at 61 hasn't set the record. I, I think you're on both sides of the aisle here. I know you've, you've pushed back on the fact that baseball 
is kind of into this, like, that wasn't legit. Uh, but you also have your reasons to think that Bonds isn't really the home run king. So explain. Nuance is our friend, Steve. Yes. Uh, yes. Number, number one, that there, there were a lot of players. That Major League Baseball stars were juicing. Um, but this is something that Major League Baseball looked the other way after the 1994 labor impasse that saw the Major League Baseball lose the World Series and pretty much put the sport in jeopardy and rolled the wave of the home run chase in 1998 between uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and new broadcasting contracts to, to increasing values of teams and increasing um, them, uh, how much money the league makes and keep it viable when it was going to be a second-class, second-tier sport and wrote that to a wave of now. But if Major League Baseball look, look, has also looked the other way, they never took their championship from the Houston Astros, so they've been perfectly comfortable riding the wave of cheating to make money, yep. but then later on, you know, once there's these sanctimonious of figures, including the Baseball Writers Association of America, yep. <laughs> everyone, <laughs> being so hypocritical about the game of baseball, holding dear when some of these guys in the area of Babe Ruth, they can see. <laughs> but over the course of Major League Baseball history, plenty of guys have taken so many different things. The game has looked a completely different way. And I think that's what people are calling out this game about. Give the money back for the broadcasting contract. Take away the value of the team. If you haven't done that, you keep those records, then you put those players in the hall and accept the records that they've given. We'll get to Bonds here in a second because I want to follow up on what you said. Uh, I, I don't believe the steroid era should be treated any differently. First of all, we don't know when it began. Uh, I'll look back at the 83-84 uh, Tigers, and there were guys on that team who were like, Jesus, look at the build on these dudes. I don't know if they were doing it. And I don't know when it actually stopped. And the other thing is this narrative that it was just the hitters who were roiding in the 90s and 2000s is completely foolish. And we've got guys going to the Hall of Fame like Pedro Martinez, who was 5'11 and 140 pounds, who threw 99 miles an hour, and Gangly failing in the minor leagues, Randy Johnson at 6'11, 6'10, who went in. Oh, they're clean. There were as many pitchers as hitters using steroids so the hitters who banged home runs were part of an environment where a lot of times it was Royd against Royd. Well, yeah, and Roger Clemens is the only guy getting big ding for it, right? Yep. yep. Uh, and and so I mean I, I think that's what the, the narrative is, and I think it's baseball is pick and chosen you know, based on their associations or what they view of them as a player of their even the physique stuff is so silly. Uh, just because Randy Johnson was a gangly guy, yep, he could yep. never use steroids. I never. I'm never going to say a guy juiced or not, but this was basically juicer versus juicer. There was a dead ball era in Major League Baseball. There are multiple eras where guys were on the same plane for a field in terms of how they competed. You have to be able to accept that as part of the game. And so that's what, that's what it is. I mean, and I, I think that it's important that Major League Baseball stop the hypocrisy. What, it, it's like it, we, we all see through this. But, I mean, it, it, I think it's important also to note what Aaron Judge is not – part of this debate at all he had he's not speaking out and saying who's the real who has a real home run record all yep. he's gone out and has been says the right thing go out and help his team win um put one of the best seasons in major league baseball in history and he, yes he happens to play in new york and he happens to be a new york yankee a team that a lot of people hate for winning but keep your ire off of just uh for aaron judge and keep the debate someplace else he's the host of suit up news cultural legal contributor 
here on Cofield and Company. All right, so what's your problem with Bonds? I mean, he, he did juice. I mean, I think it's important just to recognize that these guys did cheat. I mean, yes, guys have cheated in the past. That doesn't necessarily mean it was okay for them to cheat then. I mean, Pittsburgh, Barry Bonds was a absolute force and a Hall of Famer in and of itself. So what I'm saying is that they, these guys should not have juiced in the first place. They should not have cheated in the first place. They needed to be dinged at the time, and the sport needed to be to treat it with the severity at the time. But because they did not, then now you but you and you reap the benefits of these guys doing it. It's ridiculous to come back later and then cry foul. Yeah, I bet you if you had a or uh, put up a poll about a uh, bigger louse and cheater, Sammy Sosa or Brett Favre. Sosa would win in a landslide, and Bob Costas would be one of the guys voting for Sosa. Uh, let's get to Favre, because now the latest news is last week it was redirecting money from the uh, welfare funds in Mississippi to help build a volleyball arena. Now we found out that he actually was proactive in reaching out to the governor at the time to try to get some more of that welfare money for a Southern Miss indoor practice facility. And on top of that... Now we're finding out that he may have used his foundation to redirect money for some of the same causes. This is really serious stuff. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, it's supposed to be for underserved people. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, I, I think that this just gets worse. The criminality seems to get worse and worse for Brett Favre. And I, I've tweeted this before, Brett Favre should be in jail. Um, I, I don't say this lightly. I don't say someone to go to jail lightly, but... Everyone around him is going to jail. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. This, this is the biggest scandal of its type in the state ever. And it, it, it's impossible. We, there's text messages that openly show the former governor saying, hey, if you do this, you will violate the law. <laughs> and Brent Park still doggedly going forward anyway. I mean, the, every time we see more evidence coming out, this is criminality. I mean, if, if Brett Favre looked like Kooky, <laughs> then Brett Favre would be under the jail. Uh, there are plenty of welfare fraud cases that are that are definitely not as more five dollars, fifty dollars, not five million dollars. Xavier Pope on the horn. All right, this is a tough one. These are tricky situations. So it started uh, with a BYU Duke volleyball game with a African American playing for. Duke, who said she was the victim of multiple racial slurs throughout the game. BYU did nothing. Then BYU follows it up with, we've done an internal investigation. No proof. And I swear, the people in Utah are like, there it is. She was lying. And now the aftermath included Don Staley at South Carolina saying, you know what? We're not playing our series against BYU women's basketball BYU's now gone at South Carolina, and Staley said, you got to pay us money. So there's a lot here, and I just wonder from the front end to what's going on now, what should have been the reaction from people? Did Dawn Staley react too quickly? Has she now put South Carolina in harm's way? Number one, first let's start with the legal aspect of it. They were supposed to play home-and-home. Contract was supposed to be a $25,000 penalty. If you pull out of the game, then erase it $100,000. The original, original contract was signed by South Carolina, was not countersigned by BYU. And then there was another contract that was updated for the penalty, and that contract wasn't in its completion. So it's really simple contract law stuff. You have to sign a contract <laughs> in order for it to be evidence. That's number one. 
secondly, Don Staley has the, the she has as a coach. She has to defend her players, and it shows the players that she cares about them, and that's how she creates solidarity, and that's how you create a continuing program at the school. Third, we saw the Washington Commanders have their own internal investigation. So what, what, what happened there, uh, Steve? Uh, and so I, I think it's important that we look at certain institutions that want to insulate themselves from being seen a certain way. It's racist. Where, and, and why would they come out with anything other than, hey, we didn't find anything, maybe reinstate the fans, and any fans that are in and around this person, why would they openly say this person has said something racist? This is a conflict of interest, and I, I think there's right for people to have speculation about whether this, this report actually uh, is, is, is verifiably uh, came out with something that determined that there was no racist thing that being said to Rachel Richardson, and for her to come out and just make something up like that in a hostile environment and then like that really is, is pretty disgusting, particularly comparing her to a Jesse Smollett. I don't necessarily, and I just connecting the two just because there's disputes about what happened. And then you see online, Steve, all the vitriol against Rachel Richardson talking about, oh, you're making this up, but it's racist comment. So right. it defeats the purpose entirely. And so I think it's important to look, unpack the nature of that contract, Beyonce protecting her players, and also how can we really trust fully that investigation when a school by wants to play I want to talk some food here. I know it's a, an awkward transition. And I noticed <laughs> a, a story was out by the uh, Interceptor about some comments a CEO of a, a big $12 billion company told investors the other day, quote, I pray for inflation every day because you can use inflation as an excuse to jack up prices. And I kind of feel like that's a lot of what's happening right now around the country. We're getting crushed by higher prices and the cover essentially is well there's inflation what do you want us to do we have to raise the prices yeah but that's illegal <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, i mean i i think that i think it it goes to serve that they should probably be looked at a little bit closer in terms of how they're setting prices in the market and and any relationship they have with other companies doing so as well so that's that's definitely something that's alarming for a ceo to say something like that um, and we also see this whole shrinkflation. I've seen it growing to the grocery store. You know, box of cereal that I bought that was once of 14 ounces for one price. Yep. Now it's oh, 11 ounces. It's the same price. Yep. And it it, 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 it it destroys consumer confidence because there are consumer confidence that show what we believe in the prices of the, the products that we're buying. But the issue is not just the the, the prices that we're paying, but it's also the stagnating wages that, that that are being paid to these same people that are working for these same companies. And so on one hand, you want to raise the price on the consumer. On the other hand, you don't want to raise the wages of, of individuals that work for you to be able to pay for the goods and services that are offered. I got like 20, 25 seconds left. Uh, what's on Suit Up News? And we're talking about the flute, man. And also, <laughs> there's so many things that go into this to unpack and how this is being channel into other parts of our society, something to look into. Stay, uh, check out the hashtag Suit Up News and add Xavier Pope, E-X-A-V-I-R-P-O-P for the latest episode. Love you, buddy. Thank you. Love y'all. There he is, Xavier Pope. Yeah. I didn't even think about the shrinkflation. I go out to buy a bag of ice now, and I'm like, wait, seven pounds? It used to be 10 pounds. It's the same price? What? <laughs>